You are listening to Wide Margins. This is episode 26, Why Young Americans Are Leaving Church. The idea for this episode came from an article that was handed to me last week. Uh, The article was originally posted on foxnews.com. It's an opinion column by J. Warner Wallace entitled, Young Christians Are Leaving the Church. Here's Why. Uh, What makes this interesting is that Wallace cites some new research by Pew Research Center, a group that tracks religion in the United States, and uh, this was from 2018, and it's uh, research on a growing group in America that pollsters call the religious nuns. Now, you're, you're probably thinking when I say that of nuns in a convent, N-U-N, but that's not what this is talking about. This is N-O-N-E-S, as in no religious affiliation. Uh, Several years ago, pollsters trying to get the religious landscape of America would ask in studies, what religious affiliation are you? And there'd be a certain percentage that would say Catholic, and a certain percentage that would say Protestant, or a certain percentage that would say evangelical, or maybe not a Christian religion, they would say uh, Muslim or Buddhist, etc. And then they had to put on the list a choice, no religious affiliation, or none. And several years ago, more than 10, I think, uh, researchers started to realize that the fastest growing category was not Christian or Muslim, but the fastest growing category was no religious affiliation. That's not the same as saying it's the biggest category yet, But if things continue as they are now, one day this group will be the largest group, a non-religious group, which is, you know, understandably disconcerting. This group is mostly ex-Christian and under the age of 35. So the study that is cited in Wallace's column uh, has to do with why they have rejected religious affiliations, trying to get down to the the reason why they left church or left religion. And as most of these studies do, it's not open-ended. They gave them several choices, and I'll just read to you some of the choices that they had to choose from along with the percentage who agreed with the choice. In other words, who said, yes, this is why I left church, left religion. Uh, The number one reason, 51% agreeing with this, is that they question a lot of religious teaching. Number two, right behind that at 46%, is that they don't like the positions churches take on social political issues. Uh, These days, social justice is a big topic. There's a lot of controversy regarding things like immigration and poverty, etc., So that's a big issue. No surprise that that's number two at 46%. And then some of the lesser agreed with statements were 34%, I don't like religious organizations. 31%, I don't like religious leaders. 26%, religion is irrelevant to me. So I think those are five choices there, and you can see the percentages that go along with that. Uh, Wallace talks about those and says that on the surface, these choices, uh, we might infer from these choices that the reason why young people are leaving the faith is that they no longer agree with the teaching of the church or they don't like religious organizations 
or they don't like religious leaders. And then he argues this is not why Christians are leaving the church. Wallace points out that a big part, a glaring statistic, is being overlooked from this study, which is that when religious nuns were asked to identify the most important reason for not affiliating with a religion, the largest response was that none of these responses were really very important. In other words, they were saying, I'm looking at this study here, I'm looking at the choices that you give me, and the real reason why I left church or have given up on faith altogether is not represented on this study. And you have to go back to 2016 when Pew Research did an an open-ended study where respondents could put in their own words why they no longer believe or no longer identify with religious groups. And you go back there and the best you can summarize what they say is that they no longer believe in religion. They no longer believe Christianity is true. They no longer believe religion is true. And uh, I'll give you a sample of some of the some of the um, responses that were reported. Uh, this is just a sample. It's not a representation of all these. And again, this is not the 2018 study that we began with, but we've gone back now to the 2016 Pew Research study where they were allowed to give more open-ended answers. So here are some, here's a sample of some of the things they say. Um, why they gave up on religion. Learning about evolution when I went away to college. No surprise there. Evolution, I know there are theistic evolutionists, but evolution does not leave room for God. It is a naturalistic explanation for how life came to be on earth. Uh, another one, religion is the opiate of the people. Okay, so communism, that's alarming. Rational thought makes religion go out the window. Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. Um, I just realized somewhere along the line that I didn't really believe it. Okay, that's not really an explanation. It's just a statement of what happened. Um... I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else. So I'm doing this because my parents did the other thing. Uh, rebellion. That's, that's basically the answer there. So some of those are instructive. Some of them are just frustrating. But there you get a clearer picture, I think, and so does Wallace who wrote the column, as to why Christians are leaving the faith, why young people in particular in America, and I think it's important to point out where this is happening, we ignore uh, growth in the church and other parts of the world. Americans are so self-centered, but um, why young Christians in America are leaving the faith. And it comes down to they're no longer convinced in the existence of God and the necessity of the church. That's what it comes down to. Now, Wallace's solution to all of this is, hey, what we need to do is we need to strengthen our apologetics. We need to go back to the evidentiary arguments for the existence of God, for the resurrection of Christ, for the necessity of church, 
for the inspiration of the Bible. He doesn't go into those specifics, but he basically says we need to go back to rational arguments for the existence of God. Here's my take on it. I'm not disagreeing with him. I just think that he had a word count and he didn't get to finish all the explanation of this. Uh, It could take a book, really. And I don't think he takes into account the unique qualities of this generation we're studying as compared to the ones that came before it. Here's one thing. This group says we're not convinced by arguments favoring Christianity. So they come off in this study as people who are rational and logical and need evidence. So, you know, they look really intelligent. At the same time, other studies and other reports and other trends show they're not all that interested in evidence and materialism, and they're not interested in giving up totally on things that are supernatural or imaginary or religious or spiritual or invisible. And the reason I say that is just look at the headlines or look more particularly, look at the trends on social media from week to week and what gets people excited. I just took a you know, gamble that there would be something in this and went to Twitter before I recorded this episode to see what was trending. And one of the biggest trending stories for the week was that SETI, that's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, started by Carl Sagan and funded by the government. SETI has discovered 72 radio transmissions, they call them. In other words, uh, radio waves that have been transmitted in a galaxy billions of light years away. 72 signals from a distant galaxy. And that's the headline, and people got so excited and started sharing it, they, they, it went viral because, obviously, the headline made it look like we've discovered life on other planets. Now, if you dig into what was actually discovered, it was radio waves that could be produced naturally in the universe that have no pattern. There's no evidence to suggest that these did not occur naturally there are hundreds of different reasons, hundreds of different ways they could be produced naturally. There's no reason to believe this is evidence of extraterrestrial life on other planets. But that's all that it took without any further evidence for some people to say, we found it, it's there, we've got it. It's what we've always been looking for, life on other planets. So I'm trying to pair that with this view that the young generation of America demands evidence and does not jump to conclusions and wants to be able to see everything with their eyes or be able to have empirical evidence. I'm just not buying that that's all that's going on, that that's the full picture. In addition to that, look at the fastest growing religions in America today. These uh, evangelical megachurches Many of them, I would, I would say most of them, are charismatic, or at the very least, they allow the possibility of miracles today, despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, all of them, I think I can make a blanket statement here, all of them believe in a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, 
So the Holy Spirit is miraculously working on you within. Most of them are okay with tongue speaking, gifts of healing. Uh, the big church in my area, which is the second, I think it's the second largest church in America now, loves on social media to do the hashtag expect miracles. And this people from the same age group, not the same group, I almost said that, not the religious nuns, but their counterparts who believe are flocking to this type of faith as opposed to a more rational view of Christianity. They want the experience. They're looking for something miraculous. They're not necessarily looking for evidence. And I'm just throwing out some examples of challenges to the idea that younger people are more interested in evidence than older people. I, I don't think that settles it. And so I don't think we can simply say, get some better apologetics. If you study philosophy, and, and I'm not claiming that I'm a great student of philosophy or anything like that, but I know just enough to be dangerous. If you look at philosophy, you'll see that modernism was where science was held up as a challenge to religion. And it was said that, you know, the big T truth of science trumps the big T truth of religion. Uh, religion says it has universal truth, and science says, no, we have religious, uh, we have universal truth, and they're clashing, and modernism says science is winning over religion. That's not the way people view things now. They view science and religion as in the same box because they're skeptical of all universal truth, all capital T truth, and they're more interested in lowercase t truths in the plural. Uh, subjectivity and relativism, and they they don't believe that you know one explanation fits everything. So, what philosophy is telling us is the way people think today in postmodernism is that they're skeptical of science's claim that they can explain everything and religion's claim they can explain everything, which makes apologetics difficult as well. I'm not saying we shouldn't do po apologetics; we we've, we've got to. But I'm saying we need to approach apologetics, understanding the culture in which we live. Now, what is most important in these folks in the postmodern age looking for lowercase t truths? They're looking more locally, individually, not with a broad brush, and they're looking for authenticity. That's a major point that needs to be made here that I didn't see in Wallace's article. They're looking for authenticity, and you can understand why. You start looking for authenticity, and you start to understand why they're giving up on religion. We're scratching our heads saying, why are young people even in the church? And at the same time, another major headline this week is more Roman Catholic scandals of pedophilia in the American Catholic Church. Priests getting away with abusing children and cover-ups of it all the way to the top. Even the Pope is under fire for his connections to people who are covering up. Nobody knows exactly what's going on. It's a whole lot of secrecy. There's no transparency. And Catholics are leaving the church in droves saying, we can't trust our children with priests. And we really are wondering why people are leaving church.
I already mentioned in the evangelical world, the fastest growing churches are up for just about anything. Now, they're orthodox when it comes to Calvinism. They're, they're not going to leave the Reformed tradition. But anything else that they can let in, they're, they're willing to let in. And I, I've avoided saying that kind of thing because I know it's a, it sounds like an oversimplification of a problem in the megachurch. But I just see it so much uh, like the, the charismatic, charismatic gifts, for example. There are folks that go to these churches that don't believe in miraculous gifts today, and there are folks that do. And there's no stance on it, except that, hey, if, if people claim they can speak in tongues, we're not going to question that. If people say they received a miraculous healing, expect miracles. What if the Bible says that those gifts were to come to an end, to pass away, to cease, as it does at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13? You know, there, there's no authenticity there, and eventually this house of cards is going to fall apart because there has to be some kind of solid stance Let's talk about politics. I'm a little hesitant to go here, but I can't explain the indifference towards religion that we're seeing in this demographic without mentioning the political problems that we have today. I think it's very important to the problem. The first election that I voted in was 1996, Clinton versus Dole. And this was after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and Clinton was reeling from that, trying to show that his private life doesn't affect his ability to be president. And in on the right, the conservatives were saying, character counts. When you go to the ballot box, remember that character counts. And Bill Clinton has soiled his char character, which was true. And he's a disgrace to the office. And we need to replace him with somebody of upstanding character that people can look up to. And America didn't buy it, and they voted Clinton in for a second term, and the rest is history. Fast forward to the most recent election, and the same people who were decrying the immorality of the Clintons were supporting Donald Trump, who obviously had similar moral problems to Bill Clinton. Now, somebody will say, well, he didn't have those problems while in the Oval Office. If you want to draw that distinction, that's your business. But for me, I can't get over the multiple marriages, the multiple affairs, using campaign finan uh, finances to pay off um, porn stars. These are problems. And we had a lot of other options. We went with Donald Trump. And now... The people who said character counts are saying, nobody's perfect, we didn't hire him to be a priest, we hired him to run the country, and he has the ability to run this country better than anybody else, not to mention he's going to appoint Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade, he's pro-life, etc., etc. Now, I want everybody to understand, I think you could probably guess this, but I'm pro-life, I'm very much opposed to abortion, and I want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. 
I just wanted to see a different conservative lead our country than somebody who is a serial adulterer and who's constantly in the news uh, for this and who has caused me not to be able to watch television around my children, not to watch the news around my children because the conduct of our president's private life is so embarrassing. We have destroyed our authenticity. We can point fingers of blame at the religious nuns and say they're secular, they're worldly, they're indulgent, they're sinful, they're out of control. But we're missing the point if we don't also recognize they're pointing fingers at us saying they're hypocrites. We can fix this we can be more authentic and make sacrifices to insist that we will not compromise, we will stand up for what we preach. And then, in the churches of Christ, we need to be more serious about what matters. We are very interested in, in certain, certain sections of the church anyway, having book, chapter, and verse, which we must have, and arguing truth, getting our doctrine straight. But is there a concern for lost souls behind that? Or have we just turned the church into winning arguments? And I know I'm speaking with blanket statements, and I'm not saying, let me back up and say, I am not saying that everybody who has voted for Donald Trump has given up on character. I know those folks, and I know the sincerity of their hearts, and they ache over abortion and the deaths of so many unborn children, the the sin in this country that continues over that. And I know people in the church who both argue for truth and care about lost souls and are sincere in what they do. And then I also know that people accuse us of hypocrisy, and they always will, but if there's anything that we can do to change that, we must, because we can't just have solid arguments anymore. We have to live by them and stand by them because this new generation coming up, they're looking for authenticity. I hope that what I'm saying is coming through here. I'm not sure if I'm saying it in the best possible way. What I'm saying is our apologetics have to be coupled with authenticity. So how do we do that? Well, let me just go over a few thoughts here. First of all, we must know apologetics. We've got to know the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, ontological arguments, uh, more nuanced arguments based on beauty and art. Uh, some of the newer things that are coming out are interesting. And, and on that note, we need to look at arguments that fit 21st century minds and not just the ones that were developed in the 20th century and before. Those are very good, but they have to be framed in a way to reach 21st century minds. An example, 
Uh, one of the most successful atheists of our day is Sam Harris. He's a neuroscientist, I believe, but he, he gets off into philosophy, and he's written a lot of books, and he's an effective communicator. And one of the things that he's saying now has to do with the moral argument. The moral argument for the existence of God, in a nutshell, says it asks the question, where did morals come from? Morals are objective. The human race has always, for example, believed it's wrong to murder. Where did that thought come from? You can't explain values without God. That's basically, in a nutshell, the moral argument for the existence of God. And Sam Harris says that doesn't necessarily require belief in God. You can have values and develop your values from science. He says science is sufficient to give us the values we need. And he has a very utilitarian view of this. This is what it boils down to, is utilitarianism. He says that um, we can have social justice and values that promote human flourishing from science. Now, there's some problems with that. For one thing, science, by design, just explains how things work. It doesn't explain why things work, and morality is a question of why. Murder is wrong. Why? Um, stealing is wrong. Why? And the only explanation you can get for these ethics, these value points, is that there is a God and his nature is such that it is wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to commit adultery, etc. Science doesn't do that. Science just describes the current state of affairs that we can test and experiment on now. That's all it does. It, it has its limitations. And thinkers for decades and centuries have acknowledged that while science is very valuable, it, it is limited in this way. Now, now Harris wants to use it to explain morality because he doesn't want to envision a future, and this is the future we're headed to without God, he doesn't want to envision a future without morality because he says that's bad for humanity. And he thinks he can just use science to measure what causes humanity to flourish and determine from that um, study what's right and what's wrong. Well, that brings me to another problem with this idea, which is what is flourishing and who determines what is human flourishing and what is not. You know, uh, there was a study that came out about what humans think they enjoy, what makes them flourish, and it came down to, like, watching TV and having sex. And there was, like, another thing, and that was what the majority of people say is human flourishing. If that's what we're reduced down to, we're just like animals. Animals with minds, but, you know, animals. And we do things that will promote that, we'll self-destruct there as well. So does Sam Harris get to decide what is human flourishing? Do we take a vote on it? Well, if you say, no, we have to have a higher source, we're back to God again, who's telling us this is what makes human flourish, this is what makes humans dignified and great, uh, then you have God again. So the same argument for morality becomes the argument to explain human flourishing. 
And then you come to the question, even if we could say, okay, science can determine what makes humans happier and healthier, fine. Which humans? The problem with utilitarian has always been that it's good for the majority, but not for the minority. Minorities get hurt in utilitarian societies. Take any fascist government, Nazis are the most obvious example, and look at what happened. The minorities have no voice, they're not taken care of, it just doesn't work. Well, you have to know Sam Harris and you have to know his arguments and and study and it takes a lot of time, but we've got to learn the spin on old atheistic arguments today. And we've got to develop and frame our arguments in the same way. Um, you know, another thing that I saw coming out of this popular book called Sapiens, and uh, the author's name escapes me, but he and others have argued that religion necessarily evolved. It's, it's part of survival of the fittest. This is kind of like Harris's argument. Uh, we're, we flourish more with religion than without religion, but that's the only reason we have religion. We don't have religion because God exists. That's an argument. We've got to look at that. And I was, I was studying that this week and searching on some, some familiar apologetics websites for a response to this argument and found none. But it's a very powerful argument today that in the church we're not talking about. We've got to fix that if we expect to make any kind of impression upon the religious nuns. They're saying there's no answer to the arguments. We're saying, yes, there is, and then we're throwing out answers to arguments from the 20th century. And we've got to look at what people are saying today. And we've got to look at some of the most influential atheists and thinkers and respond thoughtfully to them, which I believe that we can because I believe that people of faith have the truth and have the answers. And then on a more practical level, and I'll end the discussion here, we've got to stop treating people as commodities. So many of our evangelism workshops and discussions of techniques for evangelism are very similar to sales pitches, training salesmen in seminars. And I think a lot of these ideas have come from sales seminars. I've known salesmen that have told me, you know, if you'll apply my techniques for selling this, you can baptize more people. That might be true, but can I make more disciples? Jesus didn't just call us to baptize people. We're to baptize people and then teach them. In other words, we're to make disciples. And uh, we, we, we just can't treat people like commodities. We've got to stop looking just at the numbers and start looking more about the people represented by the numbers. And I, I know everybody wants to do that. I think the problem is we're still relying on the staff to do all this work. We're, we're, we used to say, the pulpit preacher does everything. Now, nobody would say that out loud, but that's the idea. And now we realize he can't possibly do all of this, but instead of turning the work of evangelism and growth and disciple-making over to every member of the church, we just hire another staff member. So now we have 
a personal evangelism minister, and it's his job to do Bible studies all day long and do all the baptisms while the preacher does everything else. That, that model is not going to sustain itself. It lends itself to treating people as commodities. You know, we put them on a graph chart, we study some techniques and how to manipulate people, and we, we get them into the baptistry. Then we can report these big numbers. Meanwhile, we still look at the overall chart, and the church membership and church attendance numbers are going down. And, and I've seen this. People can tell me it's not true, but I've seen this in places where there are a lot of baptisms. The attendance numbers stay the same in a lot of cases, or they even go down. We're supposed to grow disciples, and the only way you can do that is building relationships. And the only way the church can build enough relationships to grow and make disciples like they should is for every member to buy in to this great commission we've been given and stop turning it over to the preacher and blaming him for the decline. Now, I know, you know, I'm a preacher, so I'm obviously siding with the preachers here. It's sometimes, sometimes it is the preacher's fault. You know, he can not be doing his job and contribute to the problem. But I think nine times out of ten, the problem is that he's trying to do everything by himself. That's just not going to work, and it lends itself to treating people as commodities. Well, I hope everybody knows where I'm coming from on this. I've said some things that might be taken in the wrong way, but there's no simple solution to this problem We've got to take this seriously, and if there are other solutions, I'd like to hear about them. Uh, send me an email. Uh, if you can tweet something out really quickly and to get me to look at. So I'm interested in looking at articles. I'm interested in doing follow-up episodes, this kind of thing. But we've got to be thoughtful about this and ask ourselves, why are people leaving the church? Why are they leaving religion altogether? Because we have a task to go out and make disciples of all nations And the church can be doing a lot of great things, but if it isn't doing that, the Lord is not pleased with us. I'll leave it at that. Stay tuned. We'll keep coming up with new things to talk about here on Wide Margins.